Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're putting the magic in the mayhem. Our guest is Caitlin Starling, the multi-award nominated author of 2019's The Luminous Dead, who joins me today to discuss her new novel, The Death of Jane Lawrence. As I keep saying, that isn't the spoiler you think it is, <laughs> but this book has a very interesting relationship with death, which is one of the many things that we talk about. The book is out October 5th, well in time for Halloween, which is appropriate as Caitlin has moved from the sci-fi horror of her first novel into a firmly gothic register. Jane Eyre, Rebecca, Hill House, all of those great gothic novels feed directly into the death of Jane Lawrence. But there's a twist, several of them in fact, perhaps the most obvious being the presence of magic. It's not Harry Potter though, these are dark, twisted rites that can and do hurt. Caitlin and I get well into the philosophy of magic, but we also keep things from becoming too esoteric, with an all-over-the-place chat that ranges from Hannibal, the TV show, to whether a belief in the afterlife is horror or consolation. In short, this is a good conversation, though I will warn you that for the first few minutes there are some construction noises at Caitlin's end of the line. It's nothing too onerous, but just in case you're worried that the veil of reality is being torn asunder, actually, I think it's a drill from the neighbours. <laughs> so, off we go, to a ruined, haunted house in a world that is almost, but not quite, our own. The rules there are different too. Let's talk scared. Hi, Caitlin, and a very warm welcome to Talking Scared. Great to be here. Great to have you. How are things in the world, wherever you are? <laughs> well, I am in Chicago at the moment, and um, I honestly don't know what things are like because I feel like I haven't left my apartment in about a year and a half, so <laughs> could be anything. Uh, yeah, who knows? The undead could have risen, could all be speaking from bunkers in a few weeks. At least life's interesting. You, but you're in Chicago. For some reason, and I don't know why, I thought you were Oregon-based. I usually am. Um, so what happened was my spouse is currently getting his master's degree, and that has taken us to Chicago during the pandemic. And um, we're going to be here for about another year, and then hopefully at the end of that, the pandemic will be over and we'll be back in Oregon. Yeah, because if you're in Oregon, you could just be in the woods, right? Just kind of living on berries and like befriending big. We lived close enough to Portland that we still were were fairly surrounded by by people at all times. And I will say, I do still think the food in Portland is better than Chicago. Okay, I haven't been to Chicago or Portland, um, but I always think that Oregon sounds like a kind of post millennial paradise. It's kind of deep woods and liberal politics and grunge music. It, it or maybe that's just the cliche, but it is it is more complex than that for sure. <laughs> Um, I actually, I got to, to lovingly explore and dunk on Portland as a city. Uh, I did a Vampire the Masquerade tie-in thing last year. And it, it is a complicated city. I think all cities are complicated, but Portland definitely has this uh, strained interaction between its public perception and its reality and the way it's being marketed and the different types of people who move there and, and what reasons they move there for. Um, like people didn't yeah. don't realize people kind of assumed I'm not sure how many of your listeners like Vampire the Masquerade, but they kind of assume uh, or at least when I was planning the story out, my editor and, and everyone thought that, oh, yeah, probably Portland's going to be, you know, an, an anarch free zone, 
you know, sort of thing. And it's like, oh, no, no, there's a lot of old money there. It's just very hidden. It is extra, extra fancy vampire upper class. Definitely. They just <laughs> eh, just dress like tech bros. That's all. Vampire the Masquerade, is, that's the one where you co-authored with two other, other writers. Is yes, that right? with uh, Genevieve Gornacek and Cass Caw. This is all coming beautifully together. I've, I've got Cass Caw on the on the show next week. So Oh, great. They are so much fun to talk to. You're going to have a blast. Good to know. Yeah. So that's all well and good, but you're actually here to talk about a different book. Uh, your new novel, The Death of Jane Lawrence, which isn't the spoiler that you may think it is. <laughs> I've been looking forward to talking about this book because it ranks amongst the most unexpectedly challenging reads I've read this year. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, I'm glad you took that as a compliment. Some people take the word challenging as a kind of damning with faint praise. I like a challenge. But much like Lee Mandelo's Summer Suns that I read a few weeks back, what I assume would be a relatively straightforward gothic is in fact anything but. But as ever, the best place to start is to ask you to introduce your book. So what can you tell us about the death of Jane Lawrence? So before I launch into that, for any listeners who are picking up all the construction noise, that started as soon as we hit record. They are repairing a <laughs> vault somewhere in my 100-year-old apartment building. So um, hopefully the drilling, now that I've mentioned it, will stop. <laughs> but if it doesn't, that's what's going on. So forgive us, listeners, but on the vein, on, on the good side, we can hope they find something awful in the vault. Maybe. Right. I'm That'd hoping for nice. bones, any bones, human bones, preferably not preferably not sure what the actual correct answer is there, but something bigger than rat bones, maybe. Yeah. Human bones with runes carved into them. Something like that would be good. You know, like a, a write a message on the wall in, in blood saying yeah, that kind of thing would be great. Yes. Back to Jane Lawrence. <laughs> Back to Jane Lawrence. Um, so the of Jane Lawrence does not include any construction noise, um, but it is in fact about, uh, it's a, on the surface, a very standard Gothic setup. A young woman, Jane, has decided that she needs to get married for various socioeconomic reasons. Uh, she goes about it in an interesting way. She doesn't get swept off her feet by, by some dashing, mysterious man. She actually finds the dashing, mysterious man and goes, hello, I need a husband. I don't want you to fall in love with me. I really just want to work for you and be able to exist as a married woman in society. And this doc, this, uh, this man, Dr. Augustine Lawrence goes, huh, you know, I, I never, I wasn't going to get married, but you know what? You make a compelling argument. And <laughs> um, over the course of, of a whirlwind week or two, they remove a really terrifying growth from a man's stomach there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of discussions of mortality. And at the end of it, they end up married um, with only one rule, which is that Jane can never visit or particularly stay the night at Augustine Lawrence's house, which is outside of town, crumbling, very mysterious, definitely totally normal. But then, of course, plot conspires and she is stranded there one night in the middle of a storm. And that sets everything else into motion. And what you're giving us there is about 10% of what actually happens and, and what we have to deal with. But yeah, it's a nice setup. It's it's the setup to the point where things start to go off the rails. Well, exactly. Off the rails, both for Jane and in terms of our expectations. And yes. um, I think much like myself, when I was reading the synopsis, my listeners who have who have heard your, your kind of summary there will think, okay, that's a gothic tale that we've kind of heard many times. You know, the, the, the ever-present 
influence of Bluebeard being something that comes back again and again in this kind of gothic. Uh, and and also something like De Maurier's Rebecca, you know, with the idea of, of a duplicitous husband and, and this house that's got its own history. You, you go in many, many different directions. But the first thing I want to ask about that really kind of delighted me, actually, is that you've mentioned she enters into this relationship with Augustine as a kind of transactional practical thing yes and then she's told the old familiar gothic adage of you can't go here you can't do this etc but they make it work <laughs> you know what i mean they, they, do. they actually it, do quite well together there are a couple things where if things if certain external factors hadn't come into play they probably would have had a very happy marriage yeah was that an intentional thing were you writing a corrective to the idea that you know a gothic romance can't work Yes, basically. <laughs> Not so much a corrective that it can't work. It was more, I had, I had just seen Crimson Peak in theaters on opening week, loved it, and had loved Gothic for a very long time. And I've always been sort of sad and frustrated that you can't really have the heroine end up with the sexy, mysterious, terribly bad husband um, for a host of reasons, um, both plot and sociologically. Um and I, I wanted to sort of see how far I could push that in the sense of I I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to balance how much I want to give away in this, but I did go into it wanting them to come out with at least a partially optimistic ending together. Um and for the betrayals and the secrets and everything else that goes between them to be not just one directional and not unambiguously terrifying. I actually think it's more interesting if it's understandable from some angles, but also horrific from other angles. And how do you reconcile the two? And I think you say, you know, partial happy ending. It's a very compromised happiness and we won't, we won't say too much. Um, But it's certainly not, you know, reader i married him it's much more than that and it's like this idea that as you say you know a a, a gothic heroine can't marry the, the the dashingly dastardly gothic husband in the past they have but it always involves this real kind of self-abasement and this real, yeah you know, yeah so i i in- loved jane eric when i was growing up and i always hated the ending because jane has basically no role in it it just sort of is, hand, it, it happens absent of her. And then she comes back to it and goes, okay, I, you know, this actually now fits what I can, what I can handle. And it also relies a lot on weird disability stuff, which it, there's, yeah, there's a lot to be said about the ending of Jane Hare. Um, what, what do you mean by that? Sorry, that's, this is my ignorance, Sean. It's years since I've read it. What do you mean by weird disability stuff? Oh, just the fact that Rochester ends up blind and reliant on her. And that oh, is what right, defangs see. the 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 monster, basically. And suddenly they can be equals because he's blind. <laughs> and it's like, okay, yes. hang on a second. Yeah. Pretty sure with the amount of money Rochester has, he could still be an asshole while blind, um, among other things. And also, you know, being physically punished for something you've done in your past is... Oh, Mm, it's an interesting topic, which I am not a disability scholar. I know some really great people who do a lot of interesting work in disability and horror and the intersection there. But yeah, there's a thing there. Yeah, yeah. Def- I mean, as you say, the end of Jane Eyre is, is not the ending it should be because the entire book is about her growing as a person. And then at the end, yes. she 
constricts herself back to, to marry this man because that's what the template demands. That's not at all. Just to put people's mind at rest, this, this is not what happens to your Jane. It is a, it is a lot more complicated than that, yes. <laughs> it, it, it really is. Uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation, this, because we can't give too much away because the second half of the book is is very different from the first half of the book and we'll have to tread carefully through it um, in yes. order to discuss it. But... We started with Jane, so I've already completely derailed my plan for this conversation. How else <laughs> I do it? But let's 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 start with Jane then. Yes. So, um, I'm going to tread carefully now because I'm going to ask a question that I think whenever I hear it asked, I always think I roll my eyes basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in in this particular case, it's it's a, a, an avenue of discussion worth pursuing. So, when we meet Jane, we, we are told from the start that she is highly practical and deeply emotionally unavailable yes um there's this this line you say where you say you know she was not built for intimacy she was built for numbers and you're so emphatic about her particular character traits that i'm going to risk this question which is Mm -hmm. do you see jane as being in someone on, on the autistic spectrum or is it ptsd or is it something else um yes is the answer to that so one, she is autistic, and I also am. And I didn't intentionally write her as autistic. I wrote her as echoing myself, and then I stepped back and went, huh, well, I'm working some stuff out here, clearly, with this character. But she also has a has PTSD that has been not dealt with because we're looking at a vaguely late Victorian setting. Um, and she has a lot of other things going on that influence her particular outlook on the world and how she reacts to um, in particular betrayals and emotional emotionally fraught moments but yes she is absolutely autistic I didn't put the word in there because it felt weird to put the word in there but I was yeah. hoping that people would recognize it especially other people who are neurodivergent or similar but I tread very carefully with questions like that because I just think I know right now there are people at home listen to this, just rolling their eyes at this idea, this implication that introversion equals autism. Um, That comparison and that equivalence just gets, I think, reified way too much. Oh, yes, absolutely. But with with Jane, because we spend so much of this novel with her in her head, with her POV, I mean, she's quite literally alone for much of the latter half of the book. Mm -hmm. It It feels like a diagnosis for want of a better word, of her character <laughs> seems quite necessary because she yeah. has such a an off kilter worldview about certain things. Yeah, and it's not it's not going to for any readers who are worried about this. It doesn't tread into a lot of the well worn. Um, I mean, the best thing to call them is stereotypes. Of mm-hmm. um, she doesn't tend to. She doesn't. This is speaking from my own experience. And, and related things. She doesn't get nonverbal. She doesn't have meltdowns exactly. She doesn't stim. Um, a lot of that, though, I feel like can be laid at the fact that she's living in a pre-modern or an early modern setting where there isn't as much stimulus um, heaped upon her at all times. There is a hint at, at at certain points in the book that she may one day move back to the capital where a lot of her, tra- the capital city where a lot of her trauma originates. And also it is a capital city of an industrializing nation. I feel like she would be more visibly externally autistic in those circumstances. Um, And this is all really interesting for me to talk about because it's a thing that I've had in my head, but I only just recently wrote a a piece for um, Sarah Gailey's newsletter about this specific topic. And I really had to actually dig in and look at it for a while. Um, And it's made me 
more able and excited to talk about it because it's something that I feel like I, I know other autistic authors who worry about putting characters like themselves into books because they're worried that it will either read as a weird shoehorned in thing or possibly even worse, at least in my opinion, that the character is um, alien in some way or cold or unlikable or just foreign and bizarre. And I kind of like being able to be like, okay, yeah, well, I've done it though. And (laughs) now you guys have to deal with it. (laughs) You have to, you have to come to your own conclusions about Jane as a person, um, regardless of if you hear me say somewhere that she's autistic or not. Yeah. And and I'm not saying this now to kind of, you know, be obsequious or placatory, but it it really doesn't feel like an, an overt kind of statement about the story. It feels like a natural character trait of of who she is, because as the novel progresses, there's a great deal of magical ritual that that comes into play and, and a great deal of kind of oddly kind of repetitive things that come with that mm-hmm. and and once you realize that that Jane has certain traits and certain neurodivergence her aptitude with with that kind of stuff makes much more sense oh I'm so glad you picked up on that <laughs> yeah I, basically I think you tread the line very well she's certainly not cold but at the same time it's not kind of like savant superpower she's just someone who happens to find a particular um skill set that suits her personality I would yes, say exactly that is exactly yeah, it. And, it just, and, and that just happens to be magic <laughs> yeah it lines up very um I'm not sure if I would say nicely given the the repercussions of it but conveniently perhaps mm-hmm. um there yeah. there's a character in the book um who is a researcher of magic since we've opened the, the gates to talking about the fact that there is magic in this book um and this researcher kind of gets a read on Jane very early and her interest is immediately piqued because she's like, huh, I think, I think that this woman's brain can comprehend what she's doing in a way that most of the other people I've studied has, have not been able to understand it. Um, and that sort of puts Jane in the crosshairs of, uh, uh, just some interest from, from outside parties, which, um, for readers or listeners who are in the U S or can get a hold of a Barnes and Noble copy, the Barnes & Noble exclusive edition has some very interesting research notes in the back from that character on Jane and oh. what Jane is experiencing potentially. Oh, excellent. Not enough to change like your interpretation of the book, but it fleshes out a couple things. I mean, magic aside, you could say that really the story is about Jane's for one of a better word, social development. You know, aside from all the ghosts and dark magic, that the through line for me is J- Jane learning to want and need other people, but it, not in the Jane airway. There's no, there's no reduction or contrivance. It, it is really kind of a flowering of and a flourishing of who she is. Yes, yes, I think that's a great way of of describing it. The trouble with that is. And now that you've confirmed that she's on the spectrum, that this takes on a whole new level of horror. There's this horribly uncomfortable scene in the middle of the book when a party of Augustine's friends descend on the house. Oh, yes. Neurodivergent or not, the, the horror of that, of being thrust into the, the role of host 
without warning or welcome. I think that will speak to a lot of people when they read that section. Yeah, No one likes unexpected house guests, especially not unexpected house guests who assume that they can be put up for like weeks. <laughs> and it's not yeah. just one, but it's like eight people. It reminded me of the Darren Aronofsky movie Mother. Have you seen that film? I have not seen it, but I have read the TV Tropes page. So I... <laughs> I am still easing my way into horror movies because um, I am very, very susceptible to like, I will, the sound design can really get to me. Um, So like written horror, great horror movies. I usually enjoy, but it takes me a lot to get ready to watch them. But I have read the TV tropes page for Mother. So I know, broadly speaking, the circumstances. So Mother is distressing in a wholly different way than most horror movies because there's no jump scares. It's basically... um, which maybe I mean I I don't I don't know you personally enough well to say but it is it's it's about it is about sensory overload you mm-hmm. know it's, it's literally that's its modus operandi is to just just throw just this this stimulus at you and mm-hmm. it's this rising sense of swirling panic as these people arrive and seem to know your house better than you do and yeah oh God that's it, a total it, it, nightmare <laughs> yeah and 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 it, weirdly in, in a slightly more benign sense it, it's something that comes through in in that central set piece of of your novel uh, again that that swirling sense of discomfort and invasion and you're trying your best it, yeah there's almost a degree of farce to it mm-hmm. oh yeah absolutely a major aspect of Jane's opening up. So you've got that stuff, the horror stuff with the party, but there is genuinely um, a kind of romantic, you know, narrative about her falling in love with Augustine. You know, it beco- starts a practical arrangement and becomes something completely more. Um, and you, you do write their romance in this restrained, but like deeply emotive tone that does actually conjure the era of the Brontes and and the other great domestic gothics and I know you said that you know Jane Eyre annoyed you but are those books in the background of this 100% absolutely um you know they got into my psyche when I was like 12 13 years old they've stuck around um speaking of Jane Eyre actually has a musical that was made off of it really? that is surprisingly really good um I I think I I got a copy of it at Christmas, because like when I was 14, because I insisted on it, because I, I found out it existed. And um, there are a couple songs in it that specifically are duets between Jane and uh, Rochester. Unknowing duets, for the most part, where they're, you know, the equivalent of they're singing on two sides of a split screen. Um, that have absolutely stuck with me in terms of the emotional intensity that needs to be there in a gothic romance, but also needs to be supported by the gothic romance. Because obviously, if you have these two characters who are um, destructively obsessed with each other, you, you need to sell it or else it becomes campy and over the top and sort of irritating really fast. Um, and I, I tried to channel some of that into Jane and Augustine, particularly going against the fact that that they're in this marriage of what should be convenience and both of them catch feelings almost immediately. Um, And really both of them honestly know that they should call it off because of that. And then they choose not to. And it, it was just, it was a lot of fun to give them moments where both they and the audience could see almost a parallel world of if this wasn't interesting enough to be a novel, what would their life be like together? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that that has spoken something that I've been ranting about for years, right? Because you are right. If you don't sell that tortured romance, then the entire thing is the dead fish. And I think, for me, the, the one that really sells it, and people have very different views on this, but in, in the era of toxic masculinity, you know, there are different points of view on this. Mm-hmm. But Heathcliff and Cathy, for me, is the one that works, right? You you get mm-hmm. why they're in love, that, that, that raw, unbridled thing. I get it. But then when you look at something like, I mean, this sounds like a trivial jump, but when you look at something like um, Twilight, for example, and mm-hmm. contrary to popular belief, I am not a decrier of Twilight by any means. Um, but but when you get like Edward and, is it Bella? Mm-hmm. They're so in love and they're so tortured. Then you look at the story and you think, they met and on day two, they were tortured. How have they managed to fall in love? Because it was it was shitty from day two. Do you right. know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And And I think that's something that gothic indulges to its own detriment sometimes so um i always come back to this is this is the thing that i know you say you don't you don't like authors trotting out the thing they say in every interview but i feel like this was important that i want to mention it almost everywhere um when i was writing it i was in revisions and we hadn't sold it yet i talked to an author named jeanette ng who is the author of under the pendulum sun which is a fantastic gothic horror romance set in fairyland um Centering okay. a missionary and his sister, which absolutely fantastic came out. I think four four or five years ago from Angry Robot, um, and I was talking to Jeanette, and I was like, "Okay, here's here's what I've done, and here is the problem I am having." And they very kindly had breakfast with me and listened to me rant about it, and then went, "Okay, the thing with Gothic is that your." point of view character, usually a heroine, I'm going to default to heroine for this, could be anything though. Heroine wants something and is reveling, at least part of her is reveling in, in the toxicity of that want. So it's not just that they're resisting it all the time. It's that there is a hunger there that is being satisfied. And that requires that your heroine confront certain truths about herself. Um, and accept certain things. It's not just that they're overwhelmed by lust or love or obsession. It's that the it feels good on some level, and the horror comes from it feeling good and from knowing that it feels good. And that sort of put a key in a lock, and everything just unclicked. And I went, "Oh, I know exactly what to do now with Jane and Augustine." Um, and not so much Jane and Augustine. It's it's Jane and the whole world that she crashes headlong into when she marries Augustine. Um, I would argue that there is a secondary romance going on um, between Jane and a particular other force in the novel. Yes, I I agree. I hadn't thought about it in romantic terms, but I know what you mean. But let's move on from that, because there's nothing more annoying for my listeners than me and you having informed conversations (laughs) that we can't tell them about. Yeah, waltzing around the edges of the spoilers. (laughs) That masochistic thing, yeah, that, that does make perfect sense but also i still maintain there has to be a thing that you look at you have to look at these people and think there is some joy you know there has to be some joy it cannot yes. be torture from day one um and and you do that there is like some of the scenes in which jane helps augustine with his, his surgeries and she feels a real empowerment and she feels this thrill 
you could see how people could fall in love across a surgery table. You make that into a, a, a realistic prospect. Yes. As grimy and grim and gruesome <laughs> as it may be, they find this interconnect over. And that's all it takes to unlock their, their love, that they've got something. I just think so often it's like the torture is the romance and that, that doesn't work for me. So, yeah. I'm structuring this conversation now in the way that you structure your, your book. So we've dealt with the gothic and we've introduced Jane. And then there's the other stuff, which don't worry, I'm going to keep very spoiler free. But that basically, at the middle point, and I looked on my Kindle when I was reading the uh, the NetGalley, NetGalley proof, and it was exactly 50%, okay, um, where you suddenly pull the curtain back a little bit on the mystery and on what is going on in this house. Did you intentionally structure the novel to be almost exactly a story of two halves? I did not. Um, and especially not from the beginning. I mentioned that the book has gone through several revisions. They've been fairly substantial revisions. Um, but it makes sense to me that it fell out that way in the two halves because I didn't want to just basically grab the the gothic trappings and then run. Um, mm -hmm. So I really felt like I wanted to really lean into and explore and roll around in the suspense and the dread building of the gothic in the first half. But then there's so much that happens afterwards that it kind of by necessity has to take up about half of the book. Um, there are so many layers that get revealed. Um, as we alluded to before, magic gets involved. Certain aspects of the gothic genre go out the window. Um, although I like to think that the remaining parts of the gothic are still enough to make the whole thing feel like gothic, even if some some odd stuff is happening in the confines of it. The moment that I think that you're thinking of, <laughs> where something happens to Augustine, something happens to the husband, that completely changes the rules of the game. And that was a surprisingly late addition. Wow, okay. Um, but I think is one of the best additions to the book. So when you say it's an, that's a late addition, because pretty much everything that happens after that happens because of that. Yes. So was this a very different book then? Um, there were similarities, but it was not as, it didn't go as deep into the magic and everything else that gets explored. And it felt a lot less true. So the original version, which I can spoil because it does not exist, um, Jane discovers the secret of secret role of magic in, in all of the proceedings and becomes against her will trapped in the house and has to contend with malevolent forces while nobly suffering in a very romantic sense while Augustine comes to and from the house to bring her supplies, but he cannot be trusted and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I don't know why I wrote it like that at first. I think it was something about the attractiveness of this is going to sound very strange. The attractiveness of suffering when you are in the person who's suffering's head. Um, I am a great, very large fan of NBC's Hannibal. And the first season of that is very much, we watch this, this FBI profiler, Will Graham, have his entire sanity just completely destroyed. Um, and there is something that is very cathartic to me about being along for the ride on that sort of uh, it's not exactly torture porn, but it's definitely adjacent. It's emotional torture porn. And um, <laughs> I was definitely like, that's, that's how I explored Jane the first time around. Later, I realized that that actually deprived her of a lot of agency. And not only that, but it made her less interesting. 
And um, so certain things had to change. And and all of what I've just laid for, laid out for you now got remixed into an alternate universe that is absolutely, like, from where I started, absolutely bizarre. But also comes from everything that I do establish in the first half. I'm sorry. I know I am getting way too vague. Um, <laughs> it's tricky to talk about that 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 turn point. Yeah, yeah, um, of course, of course. I mean, basically, what everything you just said, like you know, you said you don't know why you wrote it that way. I mean, listening to that story laid out and then having read the story that this is, um, I can see how your original idea was the the story that made sense in the plan. You know, because the idea of the idea of Jane being trapped in this house and her only conduit to the outside is a man she cannot trust. That's like, that's a classic, like, gothic setup. You know, it's like gaslighting and all those things. Like, so I can see how that, if I was plotting this and all, that's what I would probably have plotted. But what you actually do is way more bold. It inverts our expectations about their relationship and about the the role of men and women in the gothic. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. That is the perfect way to put it. Well, I do try. I, I stumble across these things by accident sometimes. So you mentioned there for, oh, actually, two things. One, every time I do these episodes, I listen out for a kind of hook that, that the author says that I can then use as a whimsical title for my for the episode. This one will be called Caitlin Starling and Emotional Torture Porn. Um, <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> that, that will be the title. And secondly, just to say this out loud and, and shamefully, I've never seen Hannibal. <gasps> oh, you should watch it, especially if you have any opinions whatsoever on crime procedurals. <laughs> Which I do. They pretend... So... Brian Fuller, in his infinite wisdom, went, I'm going to tell people it's a, a crime procedural, but it's actually going to be gothic horror. Mm-hmm. The first season. The first, yeah. the second season and the third season, they're all horror, and they have slightly different tenors. Um, and I clearly have a lot of opinions and feelings about it, but I really, really enjoy what he does with the source material as a, um, at times reluctant fan of Thomas Harris's original novels. Um, they, it, it is such an interesting look at, it does, it does really interesting things because of course, going into the show, we know that Hannibal eats people, but yeah. none of the other characters do. And it could very easily have been um, oh. irritating and frustrating, but it is set prior to Hannibal Lecter's arrest the first season is he is helping the FBI consult. He is consulting for the FBI on other serial killer cases, but as a respected psychiatrist who throws very nice dinner parties at his house. <laughs> and our point of view character, Will Graham, who is the protagonist of the book Red Dragon, um, is put in a position where he deeply trusts Hannibal Lecter. And they have yes, a I thing going on. Yeah, I've read there's a kind of homoerotic thing or a homosocial thing happening. Oh, yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah. And so it becomes this really interesting, almost gothic romance where um, we know things that that Will Graham doesn't. And Will Graham is being seduced into something that may or may not call to a darkness inside of him. Um, Like I said, obviously, lots of emotions (laughs) on this. Um, But I highly recommend it. And yeah, it's 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 also beautiful. It's beautifully filmed. Well, the minute I finish Midnight Mass, I will I will get on with that then. I mean, also the other thing to say about it to bring this into the gutter, I have an undying passion for Julian Anderson, 
<laughs> oh yes, definitely. You're going to enjoy it then. Um, yeah, Jillian Anderson, by the way, her character is named Bedelia Dumarier. So she is a direct send up to Daphne Dumarier. It's not even subtle. It's fantastic. Um, You've won me over. That's it. I'll go and watch that. Um, sorry for the the weird bloody uh, tangent there about Hannibal, <laughs> but um, you, you seem to be okay with it. That's the book. So we talked about character. We talked about gothic. What I want to talk about in the final third of this interview um, is the world building. Let's take it from the the um, the micro to the macro. Okay. So your magical system. As I said, there are chapters of this book that are just. The, the playing out of magical rites. Yes. I know nothing about, in inverted commas, real magic or or how, you know, I've never had a grimoire in my life. Um, but reading reading those those sections, there was an authenticity to them. And I wondered, basically, how did you shape this magical system? Which I suppose in some ways you could describe as a magical philosophy all of your own. It is not entirely of my own, and that's the first part. Um, I will preface this by saying that I am not a practitioner. Um, I am just a magpie of information who has listened to far too much last podcast on the left. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Let me just stop you there, by the way, because you, you had Hannibal. I am the world's biggest fan of, of last podcast. And God, I, loved, I love I those met. boys so much. <laughs> I've, I've been listening for years. Yeah, I'm desperate to get them on the show to talk. to. Now they brought a book out, I'm like... Henry, Ben, please come and talk to me. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I make sure that at least one copy of each one of my books gets sent to them, and I have no idea if they've ever read it. But Marcus Parks, please read my books. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Um, when I was first writing Jane Lawrence, I was just at the beginning of my obsession with Last Podcast on the Left, and they many years ago. I want to say this must have been late 2015. This they may have recorded it even before that. They released a. I want to say four part, it might've been five part series on right hand path magic, which is the order of the golden dawn and other such um, practices in largely in England. And then the left hand path, which would be Alistair Crowley and Thelema and Ordo Templi Orientis and all that stuff. And um, finally a two parter, if I recall correctly on chaos magic. And this all percolated through my brain and came out through the magic system that is in Jane Lawrence. So it has the external trappings of a ritual magic system like the Golden Dawns or similar um, that is very focused on internal development of magic, which if you are being very cynical, you can say is just a whole lot of imagining things happening. And then you're going, well, it doesn't matter that there are no external effects because that's not the point. Um, so that doesn't disprove anything. Or you can, in a more generous interpretation, say that, okay, no, magic is actually an internal practice that specifically adjusts your perceptions of the world and your ability to interface with the world. Um, but that's, you know, wearing robes, walking around with swords, saluting the compass points. That's your very traditional Western magic path. Um, but Jane's understanding of magic and where magic may or may not be functional in this book, is closer to chaos magic, which the easiest way to describe it, and I think the way the last podcast in Left Boys described it was, um, it's like hacking the matrix. It is essentially being able to fully not believe, but know that something is true. And there's a distinction that is very important in the book about this as well, that the world will conform to the way the world is, basically. It's very tautological. It is very paradoxical. Um, but it is this concept 
that it's not so much willpower as it is the way that um, one character puts it in the book, a focused kind of madness. It is delusion is reality as long as the delusion is known to be true, Um, which seems like a very weird thing to make an autistic character be good at. (laughs) However, (laughs) not to spoil too much, certain elements. So Jane, I would say, has a higher barrier to entry to magic than most people in this world. However, the way that her mind works lends itself very well to that kind of magic once she passes a couple initial hurdles. I, I didn't want to put it in any specific real world magical tradition, which is also part of the reason why, um, as I'm sure we're going to talk about shortly, the setting is not actually Victorian England, um, that there are interesting differences between their world and ours. But I wanted to play in that realm of magic is not like a flashy thing where you can summon fireballs or whatever else, that it is a very ritualistic, repetitive, both deeply unsatisfying and deeply satisfying thing at the same time, and that it's very private. Um, but it has a performative aspect to it that can lead to, say, a bunch of rich idiots at university deciding they're going to form a magical club. And if you are at all interested in this sort of thing, and you're not like ready to dive into occult Twitter or TikTok, apparently occult TikTok is a big thing. I would, though, recommend the horror movie A Dark Song, because A Dark Song plays in this exact space and does it beautifully. That's the one with the, with the two people trying to resurrect the, the, the dead child. Is that right? Or am I um, wrong? They actually, they are they are trying to. Um, it, it is related to that. There's also something about summoning a guardian angel, which is a very very big thing in Golden Dawn type paths of being able to like essentially summon divine guidance through self deprivation. Yeah, what are they called? The the R's, what what did, what did Crowley try and it was the R's began with G, didn't it? Something like that. Goetica, I, I think. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Um, and and the uh, for those of you who know anything about this kind of stuff, a dark song. If you haven't seen it, is a bunch of people trying to do the rite of Abramelin, which is specifically like a rite of months of deprivation, physical and and psychological deprivation, in order to touch the ineffable, basically. And I, yeah, and I would say to that, if that interests you, go and, go and research what Alistair Crowley did at Bleskin House up in Scotland, which was some real mad shit. And that was the right of Abramelum as well. Yes, it was. We're both just basically quoting last podcast at each other now, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Yep, that's, yep, that's what we're doing. <laughs> um, but but the, the point I want to get to is that the magic and the way the magic is depicted in The Death of Jane Lawrence went through a lot of different iterations to get to where it is. And where it is, is this like you've mentioned, and like I've mentioned, this very repetitive state of, um, you don't sleep during these things and you don't, you don't do certain things. You don't leave the the confines of the house. And that has certain impacts on the psyche of the characters going through it. Um, in, and seeing the movie, a dark song, honestly, is what crystallized the last third or so of the book for me in terms of how I decided to depict Jane experience experiencing these things, um, which I, I feel like we have accidentally stumbled into, into spoiler territory, but I think if you don't know why she's doing it, it still preserves a lot of the the mystery of it for you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I don't think we've given anything away to anyone who hasn't read the book. I think we are remembering what we remember. I think if you haven't read the book, 
this would be easily vague enough. Um, the Dark Song, is it scary, by the way? Because I like, to, I like to manage expectations for my listeners. Is it a scary film or is it an interesting um, film? I would say it falls on the tense dread side of things. <laughs> okay. It is, it okay. is, it is not... Yeah. So, okay, for, for a movie that interacts with some of the same stuff, I would point to As Above, So Below, which I love. Yeah. As Above, So Below yeah. is scarier than A Dark Song. A Dark Song is more deeply unsettling than As Above, So Below. This show partners with Novelic, the brand new book app that's designed to help you find your next favourite read. There are no reviews, no star ratings, none of that stuff that awful people use to break the system. Instead, it's just pure recommendations based on your tastes, your reading history and what other people in the community think you might like. The app's been newly updated so it runs faster and smoother. It's still great for genre fans with curated TBR lists of all kinds, but now they've added a children's bookshelf so you can keep track of the books you want to read with your kids. I'd recommend churning through The Hungry Hungry Caterpillar and getting straight into King's It. Your kids will love that tale of brave boys and brave girls having the summer of their life. You can download Novelic for free on Apple or Android. Come and find your next great fright. Let's move on now, because we are treading close to, to, to spoiling things. So I, I think we've got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> the world building, though. So to, to finish off, um, I've got a really, really big question about this, but let me lead up to it. Yes. You, you mentioned that there is, you know, it's a secondary world setting. Um, it, it's, it's not um, it's not England. It's, it's in a place called Great Breltane. Um, and it took me a worryingly large number of chapters to realize that mm-hmm. I, I, yeah that I, I i was slow on the uptake simple question why why the secondary world because aside from the magic which could erupt even into our reality in a speculative story there's little in the story to me that demands it yeah it it is definitely a choice it was a considered choice um i'm interested to see where it falls for various readers because i think for some it improves the story for some that it gives them pause. So the most general answer I can give is that there are certain historical elements that, that I have basically compressed into a very short period of time. Um, There are things in the world, the state of mathematics, of what Jane is studying is actually similar to late 1600s mathematics, um, Sir Isaac Newton and similar. She has also, however, just gone through what is very similar to the World War II Blitz in London, which is 1940s. And then in the middle of this, it's all the trappings of the late 1800s, in particular surgical technology, general, general technology. There's gaslights, literal, literal gaslights in the house. Um, and, you know, and she's wearing gowns that you could place somewhere in the 1860s to 1870s. And... There's just all of these little details that I magpied from various points of history that all serve various purposes, but couldn't all exist simultaneously. Okay. Um, There was a time where we considered making it a purely historical novel. And I figured that if I did that, it would have to be set in the 1920s, which is interesting, but it's not the vibe that the book has. And um, so we went back and forth on whether it was necessary or not to set it in a particular historical timeframe. Um, 
Oh, and that there are a bunch of chemical weapons, too, that get used in Jane's backstory, which is, of course, a World War I reference for trench warfare and similar. Um, and then also there are just little bits of, of sociopolitical stuff that is just, it's, it's not, it's ahistorical. Um, and there's also this, this level, which is that if I was going to engage in ritual magic, unfortunately, the history of ritual magic in Western Europe and America is deeply um, rooted in racism. And I am not the person to tackle that. So in some ways, it is it is a sidestep around a, a particular historical issue. Um, but beyond that, I also, there are parts of the cosmology of the world that I needed characters to believe and understand. Um, part of that is that they do not have an active dominant religion. And that's the part of the book I found the most fascinating. Yeah. Of the world building, at least. Yeah. I, I really loved that. that. That was, you can't do that historically. Um, as much as it feels like various historical periods were more or less religious than others, to have it not be there is a major divergence. And beyond that, um, and this is something that will not become important unless I get a sequel, and I'm very much hoping I get a sequel, but the world building does allude to the fact that magic is part of this world's history. If you add magic as a thing that people can do to the course of history, things are going to change. Um, and it felt insincere to not acknowledge that. So all of these little disparate things taken together became, I'm going to make a world that feels familiar enough that you don't have to do a lot of thinking, um, that you can understand the aesthetics of it very quickly, and you can anticipate certain elements of it, so I don't need to spend time explaining it to you. But I'm going to have to pull you off of your expectations every so often and remind you that the rules are 90% what you expect, but they're not 100% what you expect. Mm -hmm. All of that makes perfect sense now when you say the ahistoricism, I get it all now. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> I couldn't see anything that required a second world, but of, of course it did. Because um, I hadn't thought about the way you were kind of co concertinaing all these different it, it is. It is probably a thing period. where it could have been, I could have sold it as historical to anyone who doesn't, who's not a historian. That is probably yes. very likely. Um, but I know too much <laughs> myself to be yeah. able to let myself do that. In, in terms of how, how close and adjacent it is to our world, I would say it's quite similar in to something like Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials world. Yes. Um, and that's, that's why we kept the name is, of the country relatively the yeah. same, was to, mm -hmm. was to telegraph, of, you're safe to make most of your assumptions. Just yes. leave room. Leave room for stuff to be different than you expect. Like, I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that Russia never bombed England. So, <laughs> so small things are different. Interestingly, with the comparison to Philip Pullman, it just made me think of, made me realize something. Philip Pullman's world is, is also a largely a religious world. Um, now, I, I run the risk of losing hordes of listeners now when I admit that I'm a, I would go as far as to say staunch atheist. I have, I have no belief system whatsoever. Uh, and it was, so I enjoyed the irreligious society that, that, that was emerging in your world. Um, but there was one paragraph, right? One statement, which I'm going to quote because I'm, I'm going to end on a massive big question here that you can <laughs> get your teeth into. Um, 
because it really speaks to something that I, a, a thought, that amusing is a better word, that I hold dear. So one of the things that comes out of secularism in your novel is a kind of refined attitude to death. And it's worth mentioning that this is a book that involves ghosts. <laughs> so so that already is a, is a whole complex thing. But there's one paragraph in which Jane is musing on the world of the dead. And she says that in the aftermath of religion, this is the quote, people spoke now of cold graves and the hard stop of the light of the soul. It's a limited existence, but one made more precious due to its brevity and more believable by its cruelty. So in essence, people don't believe in heaven anymore. They believe that when they die, that's it. Yes. And I suppose my question for you is, is that something that you consider to be part of the horror or an antidote to it? Because for me, most horror, I think, is, is in the end predicated on mortality. And and then and that fear of mortality is itself predicated on a fear or an impossibility to conceive of nothingness and ceasing to be. Mm-hmm. But I find the idea that this is all essentially meaningless to be a wholly reassuring thing. I'm delighted with the idea of the cold, hard stop of the light. What about you? Is that the horror or is that not? I am much like you in that not only am I personally, I, I almost wouldn't say that I'm, I'm, I'm an atheist in the sense that I don't believe in any God, but I'm not an atheist in the sense of what it's come to mean in terms of how you deal with other people. Um, I am perfectly fine with the existence of religion. I think it is very, very meaningful and powerful and actually does a lot of good things, does a lot of bad things too. Um, I just personally, my brain doesn't work that way. There, This is a, a very mm-hmm. weird divergence, but there is a thing um, that I can't remember the title of, but it's a monograph or maybe it was a, a, ext- a expanded letter that Sigmund Freud wrote to a friend about, so Sigmund Freud was an atheist and he was talking to, he was writing to a friend who was devoutly religious and they got along and they discussed issues of, of the soul and everything quite often. And he said, you know, you described to me this oceanic feeling of connectedness and this oceanic feeling of expansion beyond the self. And I find that very beautiful, but that does not exist in me. It's not there. So that's been my experience, generally speaking, of I can see it in other people and it, it makes sense to me and I understand it, but it is not something I personally have ever felt. Um I think, however, that it is both balm and horror in equal measure because not just because it it could change varying on what whoever reading it is bringing to it, but because an end and an absence of further possibility is very distressing for me because I want to keep experiencing things, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, However... If that stop doesn't exist, how are you sure of what happens afterwards? You know, it's it's all well and good if you can be fully convinced that what happens afterwards is always good. But if it's an undiscovered country, then anything could happen. And that is both powerful and to me, very terrifying because I like knowing what to anticipate. I like knowing what I'm aiming for. And if I look at a world in a life where there is a hard end to it, 
I can make decisions to live my life in such a way that at the end of it, hopefully I will be proud and pleased with what I've done. Well, that's beautifully expressed. Yeah. I've also had a lot of loss in my life. And so I understand the longing for being able to reconnect with people that you've lost or to see someone who you've only ever seen in a great deal of pain, getting to see them happy again and whole. Um, I understand that deeply, but at the same time, uh, I don't know. I can just, I can imagine too many ways that that could, that could not be the way that you're anticipating it being. Um, I, I feel yeah. like if, if there were to be an afterlife, there's no guarantee that it would be a human oriented ha- afterlife, that it would be pleasant for a human being to experience if, if it would even care that it is being experienced. Um, and I think a lot of con- conceptions of the afterlife sort of are predicated on the fact that they are built with human consciousness in mind and human at either happiness or punishment in mind. And I, I don't know. I don't know that you can count on that. Well, that is a terrifying prospect, but as long as there are dogs, I'm okay. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, re- I get what you're saying. Like when I, because I, I, you know, committed atheist. As, as you say, I, I know what you mean when you say like not what the word means these days. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not an aggressive person going around tipping over collection bowls. Um, but the, the one part I do struggle with is the idea that I don't care about the end being the end for me, but not seeing my dad again not seeing my wife you know stuff like that that bothers me mm-hmm. right that I that that consolence is unavailable to me it's not that I have chosen something that that comes that has that compromise as part of it it's that I'm not capable as you said of thinking that way so the the, the consolence that I will have a re, um, uh, be reunited that's not available to me mm-hmm. that's horror that I find to be true horror and sorrow but the idea that none of this means anything because no one is actually judging what I'm doing. And, it's all, and basically, it allows you to just kind of go through life thinking, right, rule one, don't be a dick. Mm-hmm. Be nice to people while you're here. But in the grand scheme of things, as long as you don't piss off people while you're here, what happens next doesn't matter. And th- that is a massive consolation to me. Well, and, and not, again, not you know, to toe the line of spoilers, um, in the book, Jane does sort of, Jane is very comfortable in the, the space of, you know, she she knows she's never going to see her parents again. But possibly the things that she encounters put that into question. And and I think that really the horror in there is the upheaval of expectation. Mm-hmm. For yes, her. yeah. Well, again, I know what you mean, but I've actually intentionally not got into the 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 more haunting aspects of this novel because yes. I feel like that is something that is too. Yes, it's too like kind of like you know, laced with spoilers. But just suffice to say that this book does redefine what ghosts are and what they want in a way that is really interesting. So all this talk about magic, guys, don't think there aren't scary ghosts that there very much are. (laughs) Um, So from that, from that big existential question, let, let's leave things on a kind of lighter note. (laughs) I always ask the same two questions to close a conversation. If you don't mind, could you recommend a book for my listeners and tell us why? Absolutely. Um, so the book that I recommend that all of you read is titled Vida Nostra, and it is written, was written by Marina and Sergei Diachenko. It's originally um, in it's originally a Ukrainian novel. It was translated a couple of years ago by Harper Voyager. It 
is not a horror novel, but it's not not a horror novel. Um, it's one of those interesting ones that toes the line. Um, and it is the weirdest magical school book you will ever read. It, okay. It, it is... It is a book that understands that being taken from the mundane world and shoved into a place where you have to learn something that breaks your brain would be horrifying. Um, and if, especially if you read Jane Lawrence and you like, I would say, the last five chapters, if that's your thing, if you are come out of that and you're like, yeah, I want more of that, Vita Nostra has the... Not the same, but a related sort of upending of expectations that is just fantastic. Excellent. I'm getting some really cool, like like niche, different recommendations recently. So that that is good. I, and I think I think it actually was one of the inspirations for Lev Grossman's The Magicians. So if you liked that, but you want it to be weirder, yeah, Vita Nostra is your thing. <laughs> Excellent. That can go in the show notes as ever. Um, yeah, I was actually only talking the other week to Lee Mandelo and I asked him, we were talking about how academia should have more horror. There should be more academic set horror novels because it's such a, a kind of inherently sinister thing. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's it, it's quite cool that you've immediately recommended <laughs> something set in a university. So so that's good. The, the last question, Caitlin, that I ask everyone, what truly scares you? So the thing that has always scared me and that I am only just as a 30-something-year-old adult learning to manage um, is home invasions. Okay. Yeah. No, sorry. It's a, it's a heavy one, but um, home invasion. No, no, yeah. no. You're, you're, you're actually the second person to say that. Emily Danforth said the same thing. <laughs> okay. Please, please carry on. Oh, so... so um, some of this, of course, can be chalked up to my my enjoyment of cathartic enjoyment of true crime, such as last podcast on the left. Although my consumption of true crime stuff has gone up and down over the years, and I'm pretty sure that, that my actual fear predates it. Um, so I used to live in a house that had a half-submerged basement. So the part with my bedroom in it, because I lived in the basement after my stepfamily moved in. Um by, by choice, it let me have basically the whole basement to myself. But the my room was underground, but the living room-ish, den-ish area of the basement was not. And it had glass sliding doors onto the backyard. Um, and I could not cope with that if I thought about it. Like, if I thought about it once that night, I would not be able to sleep well. Um even with the curtains over it, but with the curtains not over it, of course, if the lights are on, anyone out there can see you. You can't see them. It's a sliding glass door. Even if you put like a stop in the track, someone could easily break that. And I would just vividly be able to imagine somebody breaking in that way. Um, then, of course, you know, I go on to consume things like I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. And it's like, great, this has actually happened to people. And, and it is a thing where it is unlikely to happen at any given night, but it is never impossible. It could always happen. And you have no control over it. 
Even if you have an alarm system, you have no control over it. If someone decides they want to go into your house and hurt you, they pretty much can. And uh, <laughs> that just stays with me constantly in a way that no other like violent crime type stuff does or anything like that. Like that is just, it's, it's in there and it's in there deep. Wow. Well, I have a listener <laughs> who listens every week. And she's actually going to come on the show next year. Um, and I, I know that what you've just said will have horrified her. <laughs> oh, so, gosh. Um, that, yeah, that is quite the chilling thing that you just said. I mean, when it comes to, like, I in the Dark and Last Podcast, all that stuff, it's the figure of BTK that really, that the BTK killer that really gets under my skin in that regard. He was so terrible and he was so pathetic. Yeah, so pathetic, but so horrifying it's So as horrifying. Well. Yeah, that is, to be honest, some people have, have really deep, profound fears. Other people have really kind of fears that I can't quite get my head around. Like somebody recently said staircases that have like gaps between the stairs. Oh, yeah. No, those are terrible, too. I hate those, too. <laughs> they just don't rank at the top, but they're <laughs> but, up there. They're definitely top five. <laughs> and it's a, No, but it's a, thing, it's a thing of imagination, of intrusive imagination, where I can see my foot going through between the slats. I can see it. And it's just there constantly. This is this is the point where I disclose I have a like a diagnosed anxiety disorder. <laughs> but but yeah. Don't we all? Christ, everyone I you know, everyone involved in horror in some way is using this to uh to assuage the their every living terror. Um but yeah, that that is that is a cracking fear to have. I think that makes perfect sense. So so yeah, no argument from me. Anyway. After you've terrified my any listeners of mine who listen to this in bed at night, let's let's end it there. It's been a great conversation that's gone into avenues I haven't really discussed before on this after nearly 60 episodes. So, yeah. Caitlin Starlin, thank you for talking scared. Thank you for letting me ramble at length. <laughs> I imagine that some of you are now calling for me to rescind my horror credentials because I've yet to see Hannibal. I know, I know, but there's so much media to consume. I'm still only just getting to grips with Midnight Mass, and then there's the new Adam Neville film, and, and that's just Netflix. So here's an even worse confession. Get ready for this one. I have never seen a single episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Not one. I have a vague awareness of a school, a hellmouth, an angel, and some spiky-haired emo who looks like a bad Billy Idol tribute. But beyond that, nada. Yes, Captain, I will hand over my goth badge and gun. <laughs> Sorry, guys, but yeah, I digress. The death of Jane Lawrence is a real oddity. I hugely enjoyed the early gothic setup and the creepiness of the of the setting. The house is amazing. I also really liked the spin on the traditional gothic marriage thing. The way they make it work, despite all the odds. Your enjoyment of this book, as a whole, will depend entirely on how you manage that tidal shift into the second half. It becomes such an unexpected story. And remember, unexpected is very rarely a bad thing. But, in this case, it may throw those of you who, like me, were actually looking forward to a traditional spook fest for October. I do know that loads of you will love it, though. Much like Angela Slatter's work discussed back in episode 29, 
Wow. The death of Jane Lawrence is actually a perfect entry point into horror for fantasy fans, or a fantastical twist on the haunted house. Either way, if you want to explore those thresholds between horror and dark fantasy, this offers plenty of intriguing nooks and crannies, not least those meticulously rendered magical rites. If you've read Caitlin's book or anything else like it, I'd love to hear your opinions. As ever, you can reach me at TalkScaredPod on Twitter or via direct email to TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I'd be delighted as ever to hear from you. Oh, and here's a little bit of homework. If you want to read about actual creepy magic, check out the history of Alistair Crowley. If you don't know who he was, then the research will be a treat. I mean, I don't know if his reputation has quite crossed the oceans in the way that other people have. He was called the wickedest man in the world, either a wizard, a wannabe sorcerer, or a sham, depending on your perspective. There's loads of stuff about him out there, as he's probably the most famous magic practitioner in modern history. I would avoid his own writings, which are dense and esoteric to the degree of pointlessness. But a good place to start is episode 10, series 1 of Unexplained Podcast. Now, if you aren't familiar with Unexplained, it's a podcast all about the world of the weird. It's made up of 30-minute episodes related in really atmospheric storytelling style by the narrator. It's perfect for spooky dog walks or your evening run, and I've included the link to the Alistair Crowley episode in the show notes. I'm basically giving away free advertising here. I mean, Unexplained Podcast don't know I'm doing this. I just love the show. And now the host has brought out a book, I'd like to get him on my show. Um, So yeah, this is me investing in the future. But yeah, go listen to Unexplained. It's genuinely the best of that kind of show out there. In terms of making this show the best of its kind, you can help by signing up to Patreon. The link is in the show notes or go direct to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Every contribution makes it a little easier to keep this show on the road, so to speak, and it also means you get bonus content. The thing I'm currently working on is a deep exploration of the history of horror, and I'm putting that together with a respected professor in the field, and I I hope to get that out to you, to Patreons, at the end of this month. So if you like the sound of that, or you like what I do here, please consider subscribing. Here on the main show, standards are not slipping, and the next two weeks will be devoted to the art of of the novella, I'll be speaking to a pair of authors who are each releasing their own nasty little stories into the world, starting with Cassandra Kaur next week. Their book gives me the chance to get into the ghostly horrors of Japan, which is something we've, we've yet to cover on Talking Scared. Until then, though, be careful who you marry, check the cellar and the attic, and stay safe in your circle of salt. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.